Which would you rather? The bacterial and viral versions were such fun episodes to host, but we haven't yet delved into the fantastic world of fungi with this fun game. So that is in simple terms exactly what we'll be diving into today. This is Microbe Mail and I'm your host, Vindana Chipabai. On this episode of Microbe Mail, I'll be joined by one expert guest and one challenger. Our expert guest today is Dr. Lyle Murray, and our very special participant is Dr. Michael Kluter. So I'm actually going to go ahead and let my guests tell you a little bit about themselves. So we can start with you, Lyle. Hi, everyone. My name is Lyle Murray. I'm an infectious disease specialist at Charlotte Pateke. I have an interest in all sorts of infectious diseases associated particularly with HIV, but with any form of immune compromise, and also an interest in um, the immunology of infectious diseases. Great to join you today. It's great to have you back, Lyle. So if there's any regular listeners out there, you'll recognize Lyle's voice. He was my guinea pig guest, basically, in the very, very first episode of Microbe Mail. So it's really <laughs> great to have you back. Great to be back. Michael, tell us a bit about you. Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Dr. Michael Clutey. I'm a third-year uh, microbiology registrar at the University of the Witwatersrand here in Johannesburg. And I work with uh, Prof. Chibabai. Um, I'm particularly interested in bacteriology and uh, all things infectious diseases-wise. So I'm very much looking forward to participating with you guys today. Thanks, Michael. So we're going to push you a little bit out of your comfort zone and talk about fungi today. I, I look forward to it. <laughs> so we, before we head into the meat of this episode, remember that you can sign up on the website for any updates from Microbe Mail. Remember, you can also subscribe to Microbe Mail on your favorite podcast player. And we'd love for you to share this podcast or even just this episode with anyone who might benefit from this content. And then just a quick reminder, especially for Michael, before we head into this, just a quick reminder of how it works. I will ask you a question and give you two options, starting with which would you rather? So Michael, you're going to first give us what you think is your preferred answer or your preferred choice. And then Lyle, our expert, is going to talk us through which might be the better choice or what the pros and cons are of either one. There may or may not be a right answer at the end of it. Um, we'll just have to listen to Lyle and see what he has to say. So are we ready to go ahead? That sounds good to me, Vin. I'm ready. That sounds great. Awesome. So that's wonderful. Let's start playing. Would you rather mycology? Okay, Michael. So for the first case I've got here, would you rather treat a pregnant woman with a urinary tract infection caused by Candida albicans or caused by Candida auris? Sure. So obviously both fall under the Candida genus. Probably if I had to pick one off the top of my head, if I think about the resources it requires, um, I probably would go with Candida albicans in that the sense that Candida auris is a multi-drug resistant organism. So you'd probably have to take into account putting the patient into isolation, um, all the resources that that requires. And probably also because Candida auris, you can't treat with often with fluconazole or you can't treat it with fluconazole. I think I'd probably go with yeah, it's a difficult one because also pregnant female mm. and teratogenicity of <laughs> drugs. It's a it's a difficult one, um, but I'm probably gonna probably still uh, towards the side of candida albicans. Also, if it's significant, if it's causing pyuria, but yeah, yeah, between pregnant females, it's not always about pyuria. Mm. Maybe Lyle can can give us what he thinks would be the better one of the two. No, great, well, well done, Michael. I mean, I, I guess there's a few issues to consider here. I mean, in the question, um, the one thing that jumps out at you is, uh, is, is a particular pathogen, whether it's albicans or auris. Albicans is technically slightly a bit more virulent. If you look at some of the kind of mouse studies that have been able to compare these things um, than auris. But as you mentioned, auris has got a much wider um, spectrum of, of resistance to, to the azoles, particularly fluconazole, and, and, and um, that obviously makes it far more difficult to treat and limits our, our options for treatment. So in terms of virulence, maybe albicans would win, um, but in terms of other factors, maybe, maybe auris. So the other thing you'd also need to, to consider, well, which is the more difficult to treat, considering which drugs you have available and, and um, how long you need to treat and what route of administration you could use. 
So obviously, with the, if with the candida albicans, most of them would be susceptible to fluconazole, if not all. And so fluconazole would be a good option. But of course, you've got to think um, about as being a, a pregnant woman with issues of teratogenicity. But generally, um, most people would be fairly fairly happy to use fluconazole um, in a later stages of pregnancy, at least. So that would be an option. When you're looking at at Oris, our options would really only be amphotericin B or a, a carnicandin, so it can mycofungin, but we know mycofungin poor urine penet- penetration. So, um, And we're also not sure about how safe it is to use in pregnancy. So that may limit um, us to using amphotericin B. There is more evidence that you may be able to use uh, mycofungin other carnicandins in urinary tract infections for s- certain candida species. But um, generally, the, the general understanding is that you wouldn't use and a kind of candidate for a, a urinary pathogen. And then the other thing you'd also want to consider is infection control issues, obviously far more difficult and labor intensive to have a patient with candida auris in the hospital. Um, you may, you'd, you'd need to isolate that patient and put all the appropriate infection control measures in place as well. So I think I would definitely, um, I would much rather treat a candida albicans UTI than a candida auris UTI. Okay. That's brilliant. So we've got agreement there. That's one tick for you, Michael. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are they rewards at the end? <laughs> so moving on to our second one. This seems a bit more personal now because the question is, would you rather develop meningitis as in yourself mm-hmm. caused by cryptococcus neoformans or would you rather have a meningitis with cryptococcus gatii? Yeah. So um, from what I know with cryptococcus is that we usually see cryptococcus neoformans in our immunocompromised patients. So in some way, I suppose, might mean that I would have some sort of immunocompromise on board, which would obviously put me at risk of other things. So I don't know if mm. I'd want that um, at all. Um, but then again, cryptococcus gatii is also, I think, quite a stormy clinical course as well in immunocompetent patients. So it's a bit of a difficult one. Either, ideally, I'd like neither, but <laughs> um, we, we pretty much treat them the same as well, according to our guideline. So I don't know. It, uh, oof, it's a difficult one. If I'm going to go, I'd rather be immunocompetent and have cryptococcus gatii <laughs> than immunocompromised and have cryptococcus neoformans, but I've simplified it, I think, <laughs> maybe a bit too much. Let's see what Lyle's got to say. Yeah. I mean, I would, uh, that point that you, you make about cryptococcus gatia being more associated with patients that are immune intact or immune competent is a good point that maybe if you've got cryptococcus um, neoformans, it may mean that you are more immune compromised. But if you were to look at them, kind of, if you were to take the same individual with one or the other, it's quite difficult to choose. Um, gatia uh, is less common. I mean, we know in South Africa, at least, it forms about 2% of cryptococcal meningitis, at least um, from what we know, where, where we, we do know the species, often we don't know the species. And where you do, where you can compare it, uh, GATI is often more associated with a lung involvement and more associated with the formation of cryptococcal meningitis. Um, guidelines, as you mentioned, uh, the RDSA guidelines, and our South African guidelines for treatment of cryptococcal meningitis and HIV-infected patients don't differentiate as to the duration of treatment or how you should treat, uh, whether you should treat them any different. But expert opinion uh, generally does suggest that you may treat cryptococcus gatii for a longer period of time. Um, so an intensive phase for up to about six weeks um, of amphob plus fusitazine um, is what so some people would recommend. As I said, it's not, not clearly in guidelines. It is generally um, kind of an expert opinion, but generally you would kind of treat them the same. So for, for me, um, I think I would also, I think I'd rather have neoformans, mainly because the risk of, of uh, mass lesions, either like in the brain, uh, um, particularly cryptococcomas is, is, is lower. And if we're going to go by guidelines, we'd kind of treat for the same period of time. Um, but if you were to go by expert opinion, you'd maybe want to treat Cryptococcus gatii a bit longer. So for, my, for me, I would rather go for um, Cryptococcus neoformans. Thanks, Lau. I wonder if it's also that feeling of 
I know cryptococcus neoformans better than I know cryptococcus gatii because we see so much of it in our setting and we treat so much of it in our setting. De- definitely, I think definitely that's that's definitely that's definitely what happens, and also. Um, we often just don't know whether we're treating a GATI because we're often treating patients based on just a cryptococcal antigen um, and we're not always getting that that culture that would be able to tell us exactly. that it is a, a GATI. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So perhaps the evidence is more in favor of neoformance rather than you have more evidence for neoformance than you do for GATI. Definitely, de- definitely. And also... Yeah, the, the, the evidence for, for GATI is, is, is really very minimal. Cases are, are not common. Um, and mm. It's based on many, well, handfuls of patients in the Pacific Northwest and the Papua New Guinea, Australia, more so than in, in our context, for example. Interesting. Thank you both. Although, Ma- Michael, I'd, I'd have to agree with you. I, I feel like if it was me, I'd go for a GATI over the neoformans. Because neo. <laughs> Neoformance is suggesting that I'm really sick otherwise and, and at risk of self mm. <laughs> right. That's what worries me. It's not just CCM. It's not just it's that. Not just, yeah. So yeah. we're deviating from the question, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number three then. Would you rather be treated for pulmonary histoplasmosis or an aspergilloma? Pulmonary as well, basically. Oh, sure. This is, this is a difficult one. Mm. Um, th- yeah. So histoplasmosis, which from being a thermally dimorphic fungus, I, and I feel, I feel like it has a much more stormy course, it's more difficult to treat, perhaps maybe from what I, uh, just my limited experience in, in microbiology so far. Um, and aspergilloma almost seems more localized if it's not disseminated to one area of my lung. Also, does it mean I have cavitatory lung disease perhaps or something like that so if i think about it i feel like the localized lesion might be we might be able to treat that more easily than we could for disseminate well not disseminated but pulmonary histoplasmosis um and i think that the treatment for both is going to be pretty similar in terms of drug wise so it's not really that's not going to change it but if i'm thinking about complications i think i'd probably rather go for the aspergilloma Mm-hmm. with a localized disease rather than pul- pulmonary, that whole pulmonary histoplasmosis. That's just my, my feeling. Okay. Lyle, what do you think? Yeah, I think I'd most probably agree with that. Um, I also get the impression that histoplasmosis is, is, is a bit more of a stormy course than a single kind of aspergilloma. Uh, but in like a histoplasmoma, um, so there are obviously many different manifestations of pulmonary histoplasmosis. Um, and so a histoplasmoma would kind of would be a, lo- a localized form of pulmonary histoplasmosis. So sometimes you can get sites uh, in the lung of healed uh, histoplasma lung infection, and and these can then evolve into pulmonary nodules that can persist for a long time and be seen as a on on your CT or on a chest X-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those cases, they may be generally asymptomatic and not require any treatment. So in that case, I mean that that would be ideal. But then those uh, histoplasmomas need to be differentiated from those patients that are symptomatic who have um, um, acute pulmonary histo- active pulmonary histoplasmosis, and then you would need your um, itraconazole, um, or if severe and extensive and intensive cause of of amphib plus then your twelve months of itraconazole thereafter. Whereas with a pulmonary aspergilloma, um, it's a form of chronic pulmonary aspergillosis that may or may not be invasive, um, so it may just be sitting in a cavity. Uh, so the management there really depends on whether there are symptoms and any complications such as hemoptysis. Um, and in that case, you may then require surgery. But antifungal therapy can help a little bit, but um, generally uh, you may uh, need surgery. Um, but for those patients that are asymptomatic and who with stable features on radiology, you may not need anything at all, and then you could just leave it alone. Um, otherwise, as I said, surgery can offer a good prospect of complete cure. So it, uh, it's a difficult one. I think I would, um, in this case, I think I must probably choose an aspergilloma as well. Okay. Ideally. I, might I ask? Mm, go for it, Michael. I was going to ask Lyle, um, you know, with an aspergilloma, you know, I suppose if one 
if it's not eroding into, um, or you're not having hemoptysis or any of the local complications yet. I don't know, just personally, would you feel that like, would you rather have it, I don't know, would you rather have it removed um, surgically? And obviously that comes with all the complications that go with surgery, um, the risks that come with that, uh, or, or just worry that, you know, you always know that you're chilling with this aspergilloma in your lung and it potentially could still erode into um, <laughs> and disseminate because if it uh, uh, erodes into hematogenous and then you get like disseminated aspergillosis i don't know i would i would freak out a little bit i think i think i'd rather have it maybe surgically removed and then i know it's gone for good i don't know yeah well well i mean that is an option um, otherwise if you monitor it over time and you see that it's not mm. getting any bigger um, you can just leave it alone um, okay. You can use oral treatment, and and over time, some studies have shown that over time it may get smaller. Um, but yeah, so uh, it just depends on the on the on the risks. Whether they are, if there are complications, then it, it would be worth going through the risk of surgery to remove it. Yes. If not, then then it's and it's not advancing. And it's asymptomatic. Then you you, you might, might get away with it. Alone. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So we're going to move away from the very invasive, deep-seated fungal <laughs> infections, just so you can breathe a little bit, Michael. <laughs> You're holding my breath each question. <laughs> so the next one then is, would you rather be affected with tinea cruris or tinea unguinum? So remember, tinea cruris is what they call jock itch, which is... Um, a fungal infection of sort of the genital area, the inner thighs, buttock sort of area, whereas tinea anguinum is of the fingers. Yeah, I think my knee-jerk reaction is definitely going to be the tinea anguinum. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I just, it freaks me out thinking tinea cruris because for obvious reasons, I think that a lot of the listeners might also <laughs> agree with. Um, I suppose both males and females, it freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> um, there might be a difference if I recall it's been a while since I have actually gone over tinea but even from undergrad I know that the different tineas are treated slightly differently so certain sites you have to treat with oral treatment versus topical treatment um, and I seem to recall that potentially tinea anguinum requires you to have oral, uh, oral um, treatment but I might be wrong um, I also just feel like it's I'd rather, is it multiple fingers or is it just one finger as well? That's the other thing. Um, <laughs> or if it's on my foot, because then ain't nobody going to see it if it's on my foot too. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I think definitely the tinea anguinum for me. That's its okay. final answer. <laughs> cool. Well? Yeah, well, I guess, Michael, it depends if you may be maybe a, a foot to model. And in that case, maybe mm. oh, yeah. worry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big problem then. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Well, the, the difference is that, uh, so tinea anguium, often called uh, necomycosis, is, is really difficult to treat. Um, so you can use topical therapies, but for a long period of time. Uh, treatment failure is common and, and recurrence is common. And you can use topical therapies or, um, and often oral, oral like you mentioned, uh, systemic antifungals are, are used for at least six weeks and sometimes up to, up to mm. months, depending on the response. Uh, whereas tinea cruris um, is, uh, well, it's a dermatophyte infection of the skin and the thighs, buttocks and groin, uh, as Vin mentioned, also known as jocks itch. And although it's really unpleasant, you only really need to treat it kind of topically for one to two weeks. So as, as unpleasant as it may be, I think I'd maybe choose it over tinea <laughs> anguium. <laughs> a week or two of therapy and it's gone rather than... Uh, treating uh, constantly for for weeks and weeks yeah and and getting those nails to clear is is really quite tricky and challenging and, and you get patients who are on treatment for months at a time oral therapies and topical therapies and and it, they just don't clear yeah sometimes they even um, may surgically remove the nails to 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 assist yeah that's um, painful yeah, it's 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 not a it's a difficult a difficult site to to treat senior. Yeah, that is that's true. Okay, Michael, I, I changed my mind. I'll, I'll go with the asp. I'd rather have the aspergilloma <laughs> than either of the two. I'm fine with that. Thanks. <laughs> we'll just leave the aspergilloma. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so then would you rather develop lymphocutaneous sporotrichosis or chromoblastomycosis? Um, uh, okay. Firstly, a mouthful. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think then just from what I've seen um, from, well, I've never seen um uh, lymphochromo uh, say it again sorry uh, the lymphocytosis <laughs> lymphocutaneous sporothrix versus um chromoblastomycosis yes i've never seen chromoblastomycosis myself but i've seen pictures of it and it mm -hmm. looks horrific mm. it's this morph this this disfiguring um mm -hmm. for the patient i think that i would feel very self-conscious with um with this condition um and I think also quite challenging to treat. Sporothrix, lymphocutaneous, I suppose it, it, it's also going to be somewhat, you're going to see it on a patient and you're going to, you're going to, or on yourself, and it's going to be slightly disfiguring maybe to your limbs for depending on where it's following that, but maybe it's going to be on my upper limb. So people will see it along my forearm. But I think that if it's lymphocutaneous, I think, I think I'd rather go with the sporothrix and the chromoblastomycosis because I feel like the the keratinization of the tissue and all that well no mm, definitely the lymphocutaneous sporothrix i think is is my choice <laughs> okay so i think i'd, I'd agree with michael um chromoblastomycosis can be quite disfiguring um it's a chronic granulomatous fungal disease and um, also called an implantation mycosis and depending on how severe it is or how extensive it is it can be really difficult to treat and, and in some cases, almost uh, impossible. So early lesions can be treated with surgical removal. Uh, more extensive disease can be treated with long-term oral antifungal therapy, so something like atraconazole and terbenafine. But some severe diseases are often refracted to treatment um, and so can be extremely disfiguring and, 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 or, and almost impossible to manage. So sporothrix shenkii is obviously one of the main dimorphic fungi causing sporotrichosis, also known as Rose Gardner's disease. And it often presents with this nodular lymphangitis uh, with lymphocutaneous spread. That's a kind of typical presentation. But um, most forms are localized and, and the treatment of choice is atraconazole. I mean, if there's severe disease, you could use amphotericin B as well. And patients generally respond quite well. I mean, we do see it reasonably frequently. Um, patients respond quite quickly. And although there can be some scarring uh, that persists, uh, cutaneous lesions uh, almost resolve completely. Um, and uh, so I would definitely agree that I'd rather have lymphocutaneous sporo than a chromoblastomycosis. Wonderful. So we've got agreement there. And if I can add to that, I'd rather have sporotrichosis and know that I got it from my garden playing in the mm. car, then getting chromoblastomycosis <laughs> from who knows where. <laughs> it means you're happy because you have a rose garden. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So your next one, Michael, is would you rather be diagnosed with a candida endocarditis or a candida osteomyelitis? Now, I know you've seen both since you've been a registrar in microbiology. So you have... I suppose not patient firsthand experience, but but diagnostic and management firsthand experience. Mm. That is also a difficult one. I also I have a, almost like a bit of a knee jerk or kind of one that I would probably, if I just at face value, would choose over the other. I think I would rather choose the candida osteomyelitis, and I'll I, I both come with complications. But I'll just give you some of my short reasons why I probably would go with that. Mm -hmm. um, a candida endocarditis is obviously a life threatening infection. Um, I'd be worried about it seeding across the rest of the body. Um, I would be worried that maybe someone might be not having candida endocarditis high up on, at, the, at the top of their kind of differential at the top of the head. They might pick up that there's endocarditis, but they may not think of candida. So in the initial treatment phase, I might not be covered for it. So um, I feel like I could run the risk of, of succumbing quite quickly um, because I didn't get an antifungal. I was maybe getting antibiotics. Um, I think also... Um, it almost invariably leads to quite large vegetation, which means I would have to um, be probably be lucky to be a candidate for surgery, um, cardiothoracic surgery. So I think that that also comes with its risks there too. Um, the idea of someone opening up my, um, my chest to, to remove vegetations does 
concern me. Um, <laughs> and the treatment duration is also going to be prolonged. We know that we treat infective endocarditis for a longer period of time. So in both of them, it's going to be a long period of treatment. So that's not so much my concern. It's more the immediate, um, immediate risks. Mm-hmm. Whereas candida osteomyelitis, um, as, as horrible as that is, um, also going to be prolonged therapy, but I feel like it's, um, it, it, you can kind of, you can kind of get on top of it, hopefully, um, with good, also surgical management, probably as well, the briding, um, the bridement, but it's not in my chest. Maybe it's osteomyelitis. It depends where the osteomyelitis is too. It's quite difficult. I think there's a couple of factors, but yes, those would be my main. I think I'd rather choose uh, candida osteomyelitis over candida endocarditis. That's interesting. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, that's some some really good reasoning. Um, I think I remember we had one patient that had both, which was which was obviously quite devastating. Yes, um, I remember. So, uh, in both of these manifestations of candidiasis are obviously difficult to treat. Both will require quite long periods of of treatment. Um, maybe osteomyelitis, possibly longer, but um, I, th- I don't think there's really defined periods. You'd, you'd really need to go by by clinical response. Um, candida osteomyelitis is often quite indolent and kind of less aggressive than a bacterial osteomyelitis, obviously depending on what the organism is, but will require long-term treatment for so kind of treatment for about six to 12 months. Whereas I agree with you, um, endocarditis is possibly the most severe manifestation of candidiasis, um, often associated with, as you mentioned, large vegetations that can embolize. And so other sequelae related to seeding, um, such as endophthalmitis or, or, or abscesses. And treatment invariably needs both surgery, so valve replacement and anti- antifungal therapy for a minimum of, of six weeks. So I think I would, I would agree. Um, due to the destruction, the need for, for cardiothoracic surgery with, endo, with candida endocarditis, I would much rather have that than... Um, I would much rather have an osteomyelitis than, than an endocarditis, although maybe overall you may need to treat for a bit longer. Uh, it would likely be less devastating. Mm, I agree with both of you. I think something else when is we know that, I mean, similar to a previous question with the candida aurus versus candida albicans, um, sometimes your treatment options, depending on what species it is, are also going to change. You know, if I've got a candida albicans, um, which is susceptible to fluconazole, I'd rather have long-term fluconazole therapy than I would maybe with a um, candida auris, which then I have to, I, if we don't have mycofungin available, you're going to be using amphotericin B, which is going to be um, you know, not great for my kidneys. So I think that's also something that I would take into account as well, is the species that I'm dealing with. Yeah, but then it also comes back to that, very strange concept of sidle and static, which, you know, mm. is an old, it's an old concept, which um, a lot of people don't agree with these days. But I think as far as I remember, most of these guidelines still recommend that you should be using a fungicidal agent for endocarditis mm. uh, or deep-seated infections. Yeah, yeah, true. Then, Michael, would you rather develop rhinocerebral... Okay, I'm also getting tongue twisted now. Would you rather develop rhinocerebral mucormycosis or fusarium endophthalmitis? That's one I've never asked myself. Because sometimes <laughs> I've, I, I won't lie, leading up to this episode, I was, I'd been thinking kind of some of the <laughs> one versus the other, thinking what you might be able to ask me, but I did not consider that one. Um, <laughs> Rhinocerebral mucormycosis, I feel, is an emergency mm-hmm. um, with a mucoraceous mole. It probably means I'm also um, have some sort of immunocompromise on board. Probably, most likely, um, and being a type one diabetic myself, it actually is kind of funny because that would probably be likely if I was in a DKA what I what I might present with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that it's an emergency. You miss it. You don't debride. Um, you don't get a frost diagnosis. The patient can succumb quite quickly. Um, versus fusarium endophthalmitis. I f- and it's also, sorry, the mucormycosis is also very close to the brain. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas the, the endophthalmitis, fusarium, I don't wear contact lenses. So I feel maybe a little bit less at risk for that, but I don't think I'd want it either. Um, I'm more scared of, I'm, I'm, 
I'm more scared of mucormycosis, I think. I think I would rather, with its angioinvasiveness, I'd rather, although endophthalmitis is also CNS infection, technically, almost. So, yeah, probably the fusarium endophthalmitis for me, one of those. Okay. What do you think, Lai? Yeah, I mean, they're both invasive mold infections that are kind of really difficult to treat. So a mold like endophthalmitis caused by fusarium or something like, or aspergillus, quite frequently results in loss of vision. Um, as Michael mentioned, so often a fusarium is, is more associated with a keratitis than an endophthalmitis, which, which obviously can progress to that, uh, particularly in pe people who have exposure to soil or dirt inoculation to the eye or, or um, poor hygiene associated with contact lens wearers. But treatment of an endophthalmitis will usually involve a combination of surgery, um, intravitreal antifungals, which feels terrible to, to imagine mm. someone injecting something into your eye, <laughs> along with systemic therapy. Mm. Um, outcomes are not great, and particularly when it comes to preserving vision. Um, but you've got to compare this, as you said, to rhinocerebral mucor, which itself requires extensive debridement and uh, of infected tissue um, and obviously with antifungals, but requiring sometimes quite debilitating surgery that is often close to the brain, as you mentioned. Um, and the mortality rates are not are, are not trivial at all. So kind of 25 to 60% looking at, at what the literature you read. So in this case, I'm comparing maybe dying uh, or having very disfiguring um, infection to very likely losing significant vision in, in an eye. So it's not a great choice to make, but I think I'd rather choose to lose vision in an eye with a fusarium endophthalmitis than have rhinocerebral mucor. Yeah, I completely agree with that one. And and the endophthalmitis is usually just a single eye. So am I right? Mm -hmm. It's very yeah, rare yeah. on both eyes. So you'd be losing vision in one eye. Michael, you agree? I think I, I, I do. And I think that also, you know, often when we're on the clinical side, you know, we're thinking just about the, the um, we just must aggressively debride, which obviously we do need to do. And we don't often co consider sometimes that these poor patients have such disfiguring surgery. I mean, I've seen some pictures of rhinocerebral mucormycosis post-debridement, and some patients have really quite significant disfiguration as a mm. result of that surgery. They do. I think that Lau makes a very good point. It, it's going to be, you're going to see that for the rest of your life mm. um, and always be reminded of it versus, I mean, sure, you'll have probably intact vision in one eye and in the other eye, you know, I think I agree. It's also the risk of dying versus having vision loss. And I think, uh, I think he makes a good point with that. Yeah. Okay. Then next question is, would you <clears throat> rather develop emergomycosis or disseminated blastomycosis. So just as you're answering, Michael, we've got an audience outside of South Africa as well. So you may want to just quickly mm -hmm. talk about what emergomycosis is. <laughs> um, as far as I remember, Vin, from what I've read, emergomycosis is also, so it's one of um, the thermally dimorphic fungi. So both of these are thermally dimorphic fungi. Um, and the emergomycosis was, I think, previously known, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was known as emoncia before, mm -hmm. before it was called emergomycosis. And it was then described in the literature in South Africa as emergomycosis following uh, molecular studies, if I remember correctly. Mm, so it was thought to be part of the emoncia group until it was sequenced and found to be a completely different genus. Yes, and then described, so described here in South Africa. So, I mean, a lot of, um, and I don't know if it's really been described anywhere else as yet. I, I can't, I would, wouldn't be able to say that with confidence. Um, so for anyone listening outside that, it's, it's a thermally dimorphic fungus that is found often in the Southern African region, or has been described in the Southern African region. Um, perhaps that might change as we go along. Um, but in terms of choosing, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Because, I bought you a little bit um, more time by making you do that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think I think I think I would I would struggle to choose it this one, Vin. Uh, maybe maybe more is known about maybe because mycosis, we're still learning about it. Uh, I would maybe be more. There's not as much evidence around it, not as much studies. So mm -hmm. maybe I might go for blastomycosis because um, there's more uh, literature around the world. Maybe someone's more okay with treating it. Um, so I think I would probably go with the, with, with the blastomycosis rather than the emergomyces. Hmm. Okay, interesting. 
So I also found this question quite difficult to answer. Um, I mean, both these questions, both these infections are dimorphic fungi that are endemic to South Africa. And as you mentioned, mycosis, um, emergomyces, I think it's um, Africana is, is what is was more recently kind of found or, or determined to be a different species to Timonsia, to as been mentioned. But since then, um, most of the cases have been described in Southern Africa, although it is it is it is present all over the world. There are other species of it um, around um, in Europe, North America, um, and also in, in Asia as well. But most of the cases, if you look at all the cases of emerging mycosis, uh, by far the majority have been um, described in South Africa. I've never personally treated someone with disseminated blasto, and um, I think guideline directed therapy is is kind of the same for both. So an intensive phase of IV AMFO, then followed by itraconazole, at least in moderate and severe cases. Emerging mycosis is more the guidelines are more based on expert opinion, um, but uh, and and also quite closely based on, on treatment for disseminated histoplasmosis. So I think just out of personal experience, I would say I'd rather develop emerging mycosis, but um, I don't really, I don't really know. Like uh, uh, that's in contrast to what uh, uh, Michael said in terms of of of, of uh, backing up why you choose one or the other. Where internationally, maybe there's more information on treatment of blaster. So maybe this one, Vin, uh, maybe you can you can give us more information as to what you what you would do. I'm as lost as both of you are. <laughs> I think maybe the best answer would be if I was in South Africa, I'd want mycosis. Mm. If I was somewhere else in the world, disseminated blasto, it's a tricky one. I agree with you both. Can, can I make an addition to this that I, if I can choose who's going to be caring for me, if I have a say in which <laughs> clinicians, and I know that emerging mycosis in South Africa might be more kind of, you know, they might have been studying it a bit more. I might be more inclined to say, well, I choose some clinicians who know, you know, here, yeah, who know about it, and have <laughs> yeah. experience in it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's something I would also consider. I, I have to say that the diagnostician in me, if I can put it that way, has to also say that it would depend on the available diagnostics for fungal infections, you know, which one I would want, because you'd want to be in a place that has good fungal diagnostics available, but not just in terms of whether they have PCR sequencing, good culture techniques, but remember that molds need in many parts of the world where PCR and molecular diagnostics are not available, you need to have very astute and experienced um, technologists who are able to differentiate between the different fungi. And it's something that people struggle with all over the world. Mm. So, yeah, I would also want to be in a place that can make a really good diagnosis. If you're looking at emerging mycosis and, and, and blasto, and histo. So, for example, the urine histoplasma antigen may be positive in, in many cases of blasto or, or emerging mycosis. Um, mm. And even the, the sequencing, sometimes if you really have to sequence to um, the PCRs may, 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 may not be able to differentiate, but then you need to really sequence to, to really be able to determine the difference. So it does often come down to, to culturing and, yeah. and having still a skilled uh, microbiologist that can actually uh, can can determine uh, one from the other because often clinically in a patient who's very immune compromised they may present quite similarly mm, absolutely so i think as much as having the right clinician to treat if you don't have an accurate diagnosis that may also affect how you get treated and, and what your outcomes might be okay we're almost at the end michael I hope you're not sitting there developing a whole lot of gray hairs with all these questions, but you're going yeah. to... I've just, you know, if you think about how many, how often we come into contact with molds in the environment, it's amazing. <laughs> you don't get more infections, but yeah. And I'm sure for the listeners that have watched The Last of Us, you know, this is something <laughs> that I think people are quite, you know, that's that they're thinking about it at the moment. I don't know about you, but I've had some questions around how likely is it that, <laughs> that we're all going to die from a fungal infection Yeah, and turn so, into zombies, of course. <laughs> 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 so we're going to go on to two more questions and then you're completely off the hook, Michael. <laughs> so would you rather develop hepatotoxicity due to mycophagin use, or would you rather have nephrotoxicity due to amphotericin B use? So more antifungal well, than, the, than the bugs themselves. Yes. Yes. Um, 
you're fun. Um, so I'm assuming that, so from Amphotericin B, see, the only thing about Amphotericin B that I also think about is it's not just the nephrotoxicity, you also run the risk of, um, you know, when you're giving Amphotericin IV, um, local trans, like if it's uh, tissues or something like that, and the horrible kind of um, side effect that you can have necrosis at the site and stuff like that. And apparently it's quite painful if you infuse it too quickly. So I, mm-hmm. Yeah, ooh, uh, the associated side effects, side effects with that. Whereas mica, it's usually just pretty much the hepatotoxicity that I that you'd be worried about. I don't look. I, I'm, I'd be honest. I'd say my knowledge about how quickly the hepatotoxicity would resolve um, after cessation of the mica fungus versus the nephrotoxicity of the amphotericin B. You can replace your kidneys if you have a transplant. If you're a candidate, you can have a liver transplant. I don't, yeah, it's a hard <laughs> one. Mycophungin, I think. I think that hepato, hepatotoxicity from mycophungin, I think I'm leaning more towards that rather than nephrotoxicity from. You like your kidneys? Ampho terrible. I, 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 I stick by that. I think <laughs> yeah. amphotericin B is a, is a look, it's an effective drug, but I feel like it's a horrible drug at the same time. And um, I, I don't want to get nephrotoxicity. Yeah. So hepatotoxicity for me. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, the kind of candens um, such as mycophungin, they're generally super safe, and so they're like super well tolerated. But hepatotoxicity is a well-known um, adverse effect of mycophungin, but um, it's also pretty rare. Uh, and when it does happen, it can be quite severe. So you you can it can progress to liver failure, and in some cases, death. But more commonly, there's just a, a kind of transient increase in LFTs that they're seen with the, the severe hepatitis being kind of more rare. Amphotericin, um, as you mentioned, is not nice, to, especially the deoxycholate form that we have, um, is not nice to use. You obviously can get the thrombophlebitis that you mentioned. Uh, you can get those chills associated with, with infusion in, infusion reactions. Mm. Um, but the, the nephrotoxicity is most probably the mo- one of the most common adverse effects. Uh, and it's quite predictable in terms of it's most likely going to happen, particularly with deoxycholate, the longer you treat. So you generally will get it, um, but obviously you can, can try and me- uh, kind of mitigate with, with, with uh, judicial uh, like fluid management and, and uh, dosing correctly and, and prehydrating and all that type of thing. Um, but also the, the nephrotoxicity generally resolves, which is the good thing about um, nephrotoxicity due to AMFO. Um, very seldomly it, it may persist, but most of the time um, it, it gets better. So I, I would rather go for nephrotoxicity due to AMFO B, to be honest, because I know that as soon as you stop the AMFO, it's generally going to recover. Not likely to have long-term effects, um, whereas um, far more rare a complication of, of an echinocandin that may cause liver failure, I think I'd be more scared of. So in my case, I'd rather have, definitely rather have nephrotoxicity due to amphobia. Mm. There may be one, one, one point that we kind of uh, differ on, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's also, I trust your opinion on that, because I think that that difference with, you know, me, me more as a diagnostic clinician in, in working in the laboratory versus you see a lot more of this firsthand with patients. I think that I would take your advice on that one then because you see how quickly patients, you know, maybe their AKI resolves um, from amphotericin B versus maybe the longer term effect of hepatotoxicity. So I'm willing to be swayed on that one then. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sold to nephrotoxicity by amphotericin B. <laughs> <laughs> So your very last question, Michael, is would you use a beta-D-glucan or a blood culture to diagnose fungemia if you had to choose either one of these testing platforms, not both? So this is more up your alley, at least. We're talking diagnostics. I, I wish I could have both because <laughs> I just know that the combination of the two would just be so much more effective than one or the other. Sure. Uh, it's a difficult one, but I, I, hmm. I think that if I have to reason through both, um, I feel like with the blood culture, your sensitivity of picking up candida or for, let's say fungemia rather, um, is not very high. I think it's quite a, it's a lower percentage than what we're, we're happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then once you, ha- if you do get it, then it's great because you can diagnose which organism it is. You can do anti uh, fungal susceptibility testing, 
and then we know exactly what we're dealing with. So that's really beneficial about that, but the sensitivity is an issue for me. Then on the other hand, the beta glucan is a great test, maybe better for ruling out uh, fungemia rather than ruling it in, um, because I feel that the beta glucan isn't found in the environment it's ubiquitously, so it's not just as a result of, of specifically, can, if we're talking about candidemia now, um, in, with candidemia, and if I've had a course of antibiotics, it may also, the powders may push up the level slightly. Yeah, I think from the benefits <laughs> of having an organism plus, and you can take multiple blood cultures. So that's something else that I think I would take into consideration is that I wouldn't, if I, am I limited to one blood culture or can I just choose to do multiple blood cultures? No, because if I can just, do multiple yeah. blood cultures, then I would probably go with the blood culture rather um, because it's, it's going to be more useful to me. Um, mm-hmm. than what the BDD glucan is if I get a result and I don't, like it's equivocal, I don't know what to necessarily make of that result. Um, and it can be affected by other things, laboratory error or pre-analytical error. So I think definitely I would probably still go with blood culture. A true microbiologist at heart. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Lyle? Yeah, I, was, I found this quite hard because um, like Michael mentioned, I mean, gold standard is... is um, for diagnosis of invasive fungal infections is um, culture. But BDD glucan is so, so useful clinically uh, most of the time. But I think that the question here that you mentioned is quite important. So it's uh, the question is to diagnose fungemia. It's not specifically, say, candidemia. So um, we know that the BDD glucan, which is a polysaccharide, and is present on a broad range of fungi, but not all, um, mm. And we use it as a measure, obviously, in the serum of potential invasive fungal infection. But uh, so cases of mucorales, cryptococcus, blastomyces generally won't uh, cause a positive beta deglucan. Even within the candida, um, the levels are have well, a false kind of negatives have been higher um, between in, in certain species like like candida auris, for example. Um, but the benefit of it is it's got a rapid turnaround time um, and you can act on them, that result quickly. And that's often, often super important um, in the type of patient that you're worried about invasive fungal infection in um, someone who is generally extremely vulnerable, immune suppressed, often in ICU for a long period of time or hematopoietic stem cell transplant. So for those patients, commencement of treatment as soon as possible is, is really important. And um, BTD glucan, if it's positive, may help with that, although... Um, and it's also been shown to actually reduce uh, when it's negative. It can be used, as Paul mentioned, um, sometimes to um, to to stop uh, empiric therapy. And so it has played a role in many ICUs in reducing uh, empiric therapy, and, and therefore plays an important role in AMS. But it is um, really specific, so there are lots of other causes of false positives in the BTD glucan. So IV immunoglobulin, IV albumin products, other blood products. Cellulose membranes, uh, some beta lactam antibiotics can all push up your beta D glucan. So the, the specificity is, is, is poor. Um, so I think overall, um, it, it does depend on the setting that you're using. But um, if I had to have one of these assays, I think I would stick to blood culture, as you would, Michael, just because of its kind of higher specificity and the ability when to get a result to speciate and direct your therapy better. Um, as you mentioned, also being able to do susceptibility testing as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think in this case, it's quite hard to to dispense with uh, with a, with uh, with culture when it plays such an important role. And BTD glucan can often be 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 spuriously uh, or falsely positive. Mm. But Vin, you this was also an area that you that is one of I know you've done a bit of work on it in terms of yeah. your your previous research interests. Yeah, so I, we just find that the beta-glucan is useful in a patient where they definitely have signs and symptoms and risk factors that point towards fungal infections, but it really shouldn't be used in isolation. So we generally recommend that it's used as an adjunct in the diagnosis of fungal fungal infections, but not entirely on its own. Also, if there isn't a way to limit um, which patients have the test uh, performed, 
you know, in terms of making sure that they have those underlying risk factors and um, that you can kind of mitigate all the other possibilities of getting a false positive, then it becomes a much more reliable test. But it's very difficult to be able to do that. So when we're performing the test in the lab, we don't have in many situations the clinical background of that patient. Um, We also know that there are a number of different medications which have glucan in them and what role that plays um, in the patient's bloodstream when we're collecting specimens for the beta-D-glucan. So we know that even antibiotics themselves have a lot of glucan in them, um, which could also result in false positives. So it's a very tricky, tricky assay. Um, Also, lots and lots of studies have been performed And it really has to be a specific assay in a very specific patient population. Um, And our general patients, you know, on a day-to-day routine use um, kind of scenario, don't fit into those little boxes as they do in the studies. So very tricky. So as much as blood cultures have very poor sensitivity, and we're probably missing 50% of of fungemias using blood cultures, Mm -hmm. if not more, at least if a blood culture is positive, it's it's specific. You uh, are able to identify the actual organism, perform susceptibility testing as well. So I think I agree with both of you here. I would go with the blood culture. I think also Lyle makes a good point about, you know, it's not useful in instances like cryptococcus and those molds, those molds that wouldn't raise your B2DG. Yes. But I feel like one thing specifically, maybe we as South African clinicians are very astutely aware of it, but maybe for international listeners um, is the incidence of pneumocystis gerovecii in South Africa. Mm. Um, And I know a lot of clinicians in South Africa often don't end up diagnosing PJP on um, PTR. They'll often go on the pretest probability of the patient having the signs and symptoms, Mm -hmm. and then they'll send off a beta DG. And if it's greater than 500, they almost assume that the patient has presumed um, PJP. Yes. And I think in those instances, it's been really helpful because a lot of people talk about the VDDG when they're talking about PJP. And I think that's where it's probably most well-known amongst the clinicians. That's true. Um, yeah. I think I would choose it if I was, if it was a suspected PJP. I think I would, I would maybe say put a, you know, I'm not going to necessarily maybe pick it up on blood culture. I'm not going to pick it up on blood culture. No, I'd you won't. <laughs> you wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Okay, great. Lyle, Michael, this was really fun. Thank you both for being such mm. fun guys. <laughs> Thank you, Vin. <laughs> Thanks, Vin. Michael, you did great as expected. Thank you so much for joining me today. Ooh, the nerves, the nerves. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, Vin. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's great. It was it's really fun. Pleasure. Pleasure. I enjoy these would you rathers. I actually learn a lot from them. Yeah, they're fun and light, but you actually learn quite a bit. Mm. And Lyle, thank you for being our expert guest again. This discussion was really insightful. No, great. Thanks for having me and well done to Michael. It was great fun. (laughs) Thanks, Lyle. Listeners, let us know on social media, by email, or even just with a five-star rating on your favorite podcast player if if you liked this episode. And remember once again to sign up or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And so until next time, that's it from me. Ruan and Vinita, we'll see you again soon with more.